feeling today? How long have you been having these thoughts? Okay, let's start with your childhood. Welcome to Politics on the Couch, a podcast that tries to make sense of the world by talking to psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, anyone really who can teach us something about the way our minds respond to politics, and I suppose the way politicians mess with our minds. I'm Raphael Baer. I'm a political columnist, and normally I spend my time stalking the corridors of Westminster. But like everyone else, I'm currently in lockdown, trying to insulate myself from the coronavirus. So instead of being in those Westminster corridors, I'm in a tiny office uh, at home in Brighton. And I thought uh, this would be a good opportunity to take a step back, uh, look at politics a little bit differently. Actually, to be fair, the idea from this podcast wasn't really mine at all. It was brought to me by my friend, uh, Phil Berman, who is the producer uh, and who, by all sorts of technological witchcraft, uh, is making this possible remotely. Um, Phil, is it working? Can you hear me? I can hear you absolutely fine. And so, yeah, I'm sitting probably about a mile and a half away um, in my isolated studio, my my daughter's uh, bedroom with a duvet hanging up and with a clock off the wall so there's no ticking in the background and uh, the family's gone out. So I should hopefully be able to record um, fine with no interruptions. So thank you very much for uh, agreeing to host this first podcast. I basically thought you'd be the perfect person to do this because you've been writing over the years uh, of Brexit all about the issues facing the country, using a lot of mental health metaphors, talking about the national psych, the anxiety and fear. And, and I thought, yeah, let's get Raf Bear to host this podcast. So have I chosen the right person? You certainly flattered me there well enough to, th- to, to hope that you have. Uh, it's interesting. We had this, we first talked about this back in ye olden days when people could meet in cafes and sit across uh, tables from each other. Uh, and, and we and we talked about that strange phase in politics sort of 2016 to 2019, where I was writing a lot about Brexit and it was all very intense, but it, it really felt like psychology was a bigger part of the political process than policy. I mean, no one was talking about you know reforming public services or how to fix social care. It was all about, uh, can you, could you know, remain as worrying about could you persuade Brexiteers to change their minds? Brexiteers saying, why can't Remainers get on board with this project of national salvation? Or moderates in the Labour Party saying, I don't understand what people are seeing in Jeremy Corbyn and supporters of Jeremy Corbyn saying, why can't you understand what's what we love about so much about this man? And it seemed to be that psychological processes were really dominating uh, politics in a way that for me felt quite different and quite new. Uh, and so when you said, look, let's do a podcast that actually talks about psychology as the as a driving force in politics. Uh, frankly, the the thing that surprised me most was that it didn't exist already. And what about events in your personal life? How has that affected you? Did it influence your decision to do this podcast? Uh, yeah, that, that was also a big factor. Yes, uh, uh, readers of my column might know that I had uh, what can only be described as a massive heart attack on New Year's Eve, uh, and that certainly. Uh, changed my perspective on all sorts of things uh, and it enforced a little bit of a break from writing about politics and it changed slightly the way I think about it. It certainly changed. I wouldn't say it made me care less about the who's up, who's down, the palace intrigue of politics, the gossip side of it, the Westminster side of it, but it definitely changed the way I care about politics. And so Again, this was in the background when we had our first conversation about this podcast, and it just seemed like a really good opportunity to just try and discuss some of the issues and the questions, how politicians 
animate our emotions, how politics gets under your skin, uh, what it is that, that really drives the behaviour that then characterises politics, much more than what Westminster commentary can too easily get caught up in, which is really the sort of Saturday afternoon watching the Premier League, how many points have people got, who's up, who's down, uh, who's facing relegation. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I love that stuff too, uh, but I really felt like it was time to maybe cover it from a different angle. During that whole Brexit process, it felt that there was politics was being done in a really unproductive way. I felt like there was so much arguing and infighting, and 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 uh, ultimately, I thought, well, is there is there a better way? Is there a better and a kinder way to do politics? So for me, there's a sort of social, purposeful element to this, and that's where I think maybe psychology can help us here and think about you know more unifying ways and and trying to get away from this partisan um, approach to politics. And, and if that was sort of one key thing for me about this podcast is that we're going to try and avoid that as best as possible and try and make it as stress-free as possible during these uh, difficult times and hopefully use it as a way of trying to make sense of uh, what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually. Certainly, I think a lot of people I know, at least, and that's in itself as a cognitive bias expressed in that, the people I know aren't necessarily representative of other people. But I've often come across this feeling that the the political debate had become too polarised, too binary. And actually, a lot of the way, unfortunately, the, the, the media have presented it, particularly, I think, the broadcast media, there is this tendency to say, well, we need one person representing position A, and then we need to have someone else on who can then say the exact opposite of A. I don't know whether is that Z, maybe. That's a really messed up analogy up already. One of the strangest conversations I had was with a booker for Newsnight who said, uh, who, who went through a list of issues and sort of saying, you know, welfare reform for or against i said well it it depends what benefit you're talking about and it depends what sort of uh, accountability or what sort of mechanism you're thinking about and yeah europe for or against well it sort of depends uh, how which treaties and and it, in the end we got to we went been through all the issues and but yeah after a while i said look i really i think i'm not the guest you're looking for here I, i'm just you know uh, I, i'm not going to be able to give yes or no answers to a lot of these questions um so yes going back to what you were saying phil uh, it would be really great if if we could get away from that with this podcast. Uh, And as it happens, the first guest that we found uh, to speak to, I think really speaks to that very, very well. This is someone who, uh, who looks a lot at, who has looked a lot at polarization and uh, uh, political allegiance formation and has some, I hope we'll have some pretty interesting things to say uh, about how that all works. Our first guest, uh, in fact, the first guest ever uh, on Politics on the Couch is Dr. Leos Migrod, a research fellow at Cambridge University. She has a formidable CV covering experimental psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, and her particular expertise uh, is in ideology and group identity formation. And I thought it would be good to talk to her about the way dramatic, even catastrophic events might affect political affiliation and, of course, anything else that, that comes up. So, first of all, Dr. Migrod, Hello, can you hear me? Is the technology working? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm just going to go straight into it, really, uh, so we get as much out of you as we can. Uh, We're talking just very shortly after Keir Starmer has been elected the new leader of the Labour Party, new leader of the opposition. And one of the first things he did was to make a big play of changing the way 
the opposition were going to relate to government. He said he wasn't just going to criticise and attack the government for the sake of it, uh, particularly in the light, obviously, of the current crisis. And and one of the things he said on television, uh, I'll, I'll read the quote, he said, at the moment, I don't think the public want to hear the leader of the Labour Party in opposition simply quipping about what should have been done. He was talking there about um, the measures for lockdown, whether they should have come in earlier, uh, among other things. Uh, do you think he's right from what you know about the way people take different political positions? Did, is that right? Do people not want their opposition to be oppositioning too much at this moment? So we know that during times of crises, whether these are conflicts, natural disasters, epidemics, people typically come together and expect more nationalism. They come together around their leader and display more unity, regardless of the political affiliation of that leader. And so there are many psychological processes that we see at play that become a little bit different in times of crisis and catastrophe. So, I mean, that would suggest that he's right, essentially, that the people don't want the opposition to be opposing. I mean, we're, we should add also we're in a very peculiar situation now where, where the prime minister uh, himself is, is in intensive care. Uh, and uh, I imagine from what you've just said, that would suggest uh, would that be would that amplify this effect? Do you think there is a, a sort of not just rallying around the flag, as people sometimes put it, but but sort of rallying around the ailing figure of the of, of the national leader? Yeah, these kinds of events can definitely spark people's compassion and start to redefine the kind of boundaries we have around identity. Typically around these kinds of crises and catastrophes, the boundaries where we carve out our partisan identities, the left-right kind of boundaries often start to change and to mold a little bit. And so people start to see their previously partisan groups as a bit bigger and see it more on a national scale. So there's definitely scope for greater compassion for the leader at this point, which which will change people's political attitudes more generally. But how how durable is that? You're talking uh, as if we've got a sort of a data set that shows us that, that this has happened before. Have you got an example maybe of, of where that has happened or where you've seen partisan positions, as it were, dissolving, folding into some wider sense of solidarity. Hmm. So there is some evidence that, for instance, following 9-11, there was much more rallying around the leader at the time, that people also tend to display more tendencies towards conformity, towards nationalism, and sometimes towards conservatism, actually, more generally. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the UK context and in contexts around the world where coronavirus is hitting hard. Uh, the question about how long term these consequences are going to last, well, to some extent, that also depends on whether we have elections at the moment. And that's a, a strong way in which political attitudes and political structures change in the long term. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but that would suggest that because you mentioned elections, right? we can't have elections because of the, the social uh, isolation rules. And in fact, there was going to be uh, mayor elections for the mayor of London uh, and the um, Midlands metropolitan mayor role. These things have been postponed at least for a year. Now, there's a sort of a parallel universe where we don't have coronavirus and uh, we're now really ramping up into those elections. Uh, and what you said about institutions is interesting because because that suggests that it's almost as if we sort of, if we get out of the habit of having elections, we might get out of the habit of of political partisanship. And that would in itself then have a longer effect on people feeling a little bit more, uh, well, you said nationalistic, which is quite a strong word. I you know, wonder if it just means people sort of being mushed together into a, a more collective sense of of, of nationhood. Mm, exactly. These types of events definitely 
force us to put our common humanity above other types of identities or divisions that we might have. And actually, we even have some really interesting research showing that infections themselves and historical levels of infections in a region shape political attitudes quite dramatically, suggesting that the historical levels of infectious diseases can, in the ecology of a country or of a nation or a state, can actually shape political attitudes dozens of years later. So some of these effects can last actually quite a long time, depending also on how drastic the measures are uh, that were taken to combat whatever crisis was at play. I'm fascinated to hear what you just said, because of what we're so caught up in the present crisis, to think that there's actually a data set that tells us what what infectious disease does to political affiliation. I'd love to know where you're drawing that from. Yeah, um, and so I even have some research showing that both historical and contemporary rates of infections in the country, or even in the U.S. state, or even in the U.S. we can see in metropolitan regions, which are quite small sizes, um, all of that predicts heightened levels of authoritarianism. So we see that historically places, and this can be, some of these data sets go back, uh, I think, to the early 20th century or so. This is fascinating. And now what I want to do, because I'm not a scientist, I'm a, a, a crass journalist, is to speculate that what's happening there is some effect of people becoming more suspicious of one another or people generally having a new level of of insecurity and anxiety introduced into their lives that then filters through into their political susceptibility to authoritarian ideas but you know I'm busking does that is that sound plausible I mean it's plausible and it's not that far away from the actual dominant theories in the field that think about the kinds of evolutionary pressures that humans have had in terms of how they deal with infectious diseases. So we have this construct in in psychology and in biology called the behavioral immune system, which are all those behaviors that we have that have adapted to avoiding disease. And what we know is that those kinds of pressures to avoid disease make people more, uh, or they tend to make people prefer uh, homogenous familiar groups and become exactly more suspicious of dissimilar others of uh, unfamiliar groups, because that's exactly how uh, infection works. You need to stick together in the same way that those are exactly the policies that we have in place. You should be sticking together with familiar people who are less likely to transmit infections to you and try to avoid people who might be at greater risk of carrying those infections. So it seems that those principles in health and epidemiology could be translating into our social psychology and our political psychology and how we treat others. That's really interesting. And that suggests also that because a part of the the prevailing political narrative around at the moment is that uh, there is a a common experience going on, that this is going to be a bonding thing for the nation. And and I can understand why a lot of people sort of want that to be true. And intuitively, you feel it it ought to be true. Um, But and I don't want to be too pessimistic about it. But it sounds a little bit from what you're saying that there could be a a countercurrent as well, which is that we're all retreating into sort of demographic comfort zones. And I think, again, when you think that the only people who you're communicating with is your immediate family, and then even if you go on Zoom or Skype and other social media are available, um, you're going to be doing it within your digital silo. And actually, we might be accelerating polarization sort of below the radar while all turning out to still we're still clapping on our doorsteps and feeling part of some communal experience at at one level but something more polarizing is happening below the surface yeah and 
all of these processes could be taking place. And we have research even showing that in 2014 in the U.S., when you make uh, Ebola more salient for people, they tend to be more xenophobic. So there is that on one hand, potentially that psychological process by which infectious diseases could make people more xenophobic, more conformist, more uh, authoritarian in many ways. And on the other hand, potentially a pressure to come together and hard to know which one will be dominant. And it's likely that that also depends on individuals. Some individuals will tend to adopt those more xenophobic conformist outcomes of this kind of crisis, and some people will come together. So there are many processes at play. Presumably, it depends also a lot on, on leadership. I mean, if you have a president who calls it the Chinese virus and obviously has a very clear interest in setting up a national and in actually basically an ethnic scapegoat for this, then that will accelerate that effect, I imagine. We are already seeing across the world, in Brazil, in the Philippines, in Israel, in a bunch of different places, more authoritarian leadership coming into play and being justified and legitimized by the current status. So uh, a lot of these kinds of interactions between institutions and psychological processes are at play. What is the actual research you do now then that helps us to unpack some of these things that we're, we're talking about. How do you, how are you in your work uh, helping us to untangle this stuff? So the traditional way in which we view political identities and how we vote is typically by looking at people's socioeconomic circumstance and their demographic profile. So even pollsters typically think about people's age and gender and socioeconomic status when they try to predict how people will vote. Our psychology and our individual cognitive dispositions can also be important predictors for how we vote uh, the way we and why we vote the way that we do. So one thing that we've uh, studied in the lab here uh, as part of my work is looking at a construct called cognitive rigidity, where some people tend towards cognitive rigidity and some people tend towards cognitive flexibility. And we test this in the lab with neuropsychological tests that really tap at your perception and basic cognition and allow us to see how flexibly you evaluate stimuli and whether you respond easily to changes in, for instance, these kinds of visual games that we give you, or whether you tend to stick more to the first rules that you learned, whether you tend to be a little bit more black and white in your thinking. This gets us to this thing that I heard about when I was researching this podcast called the Wisconsin card sorting game. I think that's it. Uh, maybe just for people listening to this, you could just briefly explain how that works. It's quite an interesting little trick. So the Wisconsin card sorting test is a bit like a game where you're asked to sort cards into decks. And the rules by which you sort the cards can be according to the color of the card or the type of shape that's on the card. And the rules change. So initially, you start out with a rule. For instance, you sort the cards according to the color. And you do that for a while. And then unbeknownst to you, all of a sudden, the rule changes. And we want to see whether you're able to adapt to that change in the rule or whether you tend to stick to the previous rule that you learned. And so cognitively flexible individuals are people who, whenever the rule changes, they will change their behavior too. And cognitively rigid individuals are the ones that struggle more with these kinds of changes. So they will continue to persist with the rules that they learned previously rather than adapt and change their behavior. And so what we predicted is that maybe extremity in terms of your political affiliation might reflect your cognitive rigidity. That is, if you're ideologically rigid, perhaps you're also cognitively and perceptually rigid. 
And so we've been running these very large studies with hundreds and thousands of participants. And indeed, what we find is that people who are either on the hard left or on the hard right tend to display cognitive rigidity in these types of neuropsychological tasks, whereas people who are more moderate in their views, both on the left and the right, tend to display more cognitive flexibility. That is, they tend to be more flexible in how they process information from the world, even at that basic perceptual level. And from what I've understood, you're saying that 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 metric, that cognitive rigidity, uh, is as good as or better a predictor than the sort of conventional sort of pollsters demographic uh, categorizations. Yes, and that's something that's even surprised us, that actually our cognitive, perceptual and personality dispositions are sometimes better predictors than these socioeconomic uh, circumstances and profiles that pollsters and politicians often rely on. It's interesting. So, and what, from what you're saying, it sounds like really whether or not that authoritarian impulse or receptiveness to authoritarianism expresses itself th- through the left or the right spectrum or left or right channel doesn't matter so much. You know that that you're either authoritarian and then the left right is the is a cultural expression of that that could go either way depending on what cultural environment you happen to be in is, is, is have I oversimplified that no but the, that's exactly the case and there have been two dominant ways of thinking about it since the 1950s there was this big book called the authoritarian personality uh, which posited this idea that really authoritarianism is kind of a right-wing thing uh, but since then we've developed uh, much more rigorous tests and a much more rigorous science around this and we know that actually authoritarianism can manifest itself both on the hard left and on the hard right, and that actually often people on those extremes are cognitively more similar than we think uh, relative to moderates of many different parties. Now, can I ask you what I suppose is actually now a methodological question here, which is how do you know, how can you extrapolate that that behaviour is in any way an expression of the equivalent rigidity in in politics i mean isn't it maybe it's just like a metaphor for rigidity how do we know that's actually in people's brains turns into they're not going to shift their opinion on on gun control or brexit that's a great question and one of the things that we're looking at really is those kinds of correspondences between the way in which our brains work at the very fundamental perceptual level and then the way in which they people form ideologies and respond to ideological arguments We can't know for sure, and we have a whole science now building around that. But what we can see is that actually across a number of these types of cognitive flexibility and rigidity tests, some can be the Wisconsin card sorting test, but we also have a number of other tests. We see these effects appear again and again. So scientifically, we can start to construct a picture and create more causal paradigms to test this. Okay, so now there's all sorts of branching questions that are coming out from this, and I'm going to try and remember. Actually, I'm going to make a little note of some of them, uh, and then we're going to come back. So the first one that obviously springs to mind is, uh, are, are there uh, cultural demographic patterns uh, where you would expect to see more rigidity? And that's just basically a polite way of saying, are old people maybe a bit more cognitively rigid? So actually, when we run these tests, that's not always true. And what, uh, although it is a prejudice that we often feel Uh, might be the case. The science actually suggests that really what matters is the individual. Some individuals tend towards rigidity and others tend towards flexibility. And age is not the most important thing here. 
And we know that people can change uh, and that people's levels of educational experiences and attainments and how much they engage in creative pursuits, all of these kinds of things shape people's flexibility and rigidity over the lifespan. So flexibility is flexible. A lot of people at the moment, they're getting up in the morning and they're doing a, a sort of a YouTube workout um, to sort of keep their kind of cardio fitness in shape. What would a what, a, what would a cognitive anti-rigidity workout look like? What sort of cognitive yoga that makes you more flexible? So I think the best cognitive workout that you can do is pursue creative activities, ones that stretch your thinking, that force you to think outside the box. And the more that we force ourselves to think outside the box in other domains of life, the more that we're likely to do so in our politics as well. Because the more that we're thinking outside the box in, whether that's creatively in baking or in art or uh, it really in anything we do, creativity is a hugely important thing for getting us to be flexible with the world uh, and getting us to think outside of binary categories, which is really what kind of political polarization is often about. It's about thinking in categories. So when we're creative and when we exercise our creative capacities, we start to go beyond binary thinking. And that often translates and seeps into our political thoughts as well. Well, I find it reassuring that we can make ourselves more cognitively supple. But I suppose realistically at the moment, the the primary feelings people are going to be having are are stress and anxiety a lot of the time. How how does that impact cognitive rigidity? Yes, exactly. Uh, That's a great, great point. The more stress that we are, a lot of science has showed both in animals and in humans, stress is a huge factor uh, heightening rigidity. Because when we're stressed, we get into this much more narrow mindset. We tend to see the world in a much more instrumental binary way. So, that, sorry to interrupt. Can I just yeah. be clear? Is that different from what we know already or what some people have looked at about the sort of fight or flight response? So there's a sort of a brain function thing, isn't there, where you're kind of amygdala, your your caveman brain, for what of a better term, and you can correct my, I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, I'm a bluffer. Uh, but there is a sense that if you're under stress and anxiety, you, you reach for these much more sort of primal human instincts, which might you know, affect your cognition uh, and your judgment. Is that a different thing to what you're describing, which is cognitive rigidity? Or are those, are those different processes? So they're all processes happening in the brain, right? So they're all interlinked. And so the effect of stress, even external stress on the brain can then influence rigidity and make people more rigid. So definitely feeling that you're more in that fight or flight mode of being definitely seeps into our cognition, seeps into our fundamental perception, and therefore makes us more rigid in terms of how we think generally. And that is likely to make us more rigid in terms of how we view the political world and how we view social groups. So going back to where we started then, you're looking at a situation where there is a, a, a prime minister who is suffering from this awful disease. I think a lot of people, regardless of what they thought about him, even two weeks ago, three weeks ago, will have a, a different set of emotional responses now. Uh, you have a, a governing party that, that did pretty well, very well, really, by historical standards in the general election not that long ago. How, if you're the leader of the opposition, I'm not asking you to give Keir Starmer advice here, you know, that's not what this podcast is about, but... That first question, you know, thinking, well, the, the country doesn't want to hear me opposing. What is what is the role for dissent 
uh, and criticising a government in a situation where what we've been discussing suggests everyone just really wants to, to rally around. I mean, to some extent, that can make the stunt even more important because it makes us think of all those alternatives and all those questions that we're neglecting. Uh, psychologically, it's hard because sometimes our psychological preferences aren't what's psychologically in our best interest. So maybe in a time of stress, really, it's important for us to broaden our horizons, to think about debate and constructive criticism. Um, but maybe what we prefer is to just listen to one unified message where there's no opposition. So hard to tell. One of the interesting things I've felt about the, the politics of, of the current crisis is we've you know, we're used to a, an idiom of political debate that has an enemy, you know, and you even see it in broadcasting, you know, you get one person on to represent the blue party and then, oh, now we have a spokesman for the red party who's going to say that that last thing that the last person said was a load of rubbish. Now, there's no spokesman for the virus, you know, there's no pro-virus party. Um, and, and it's really affecting the way we even discuss politics. We don't really know. I mean, there's, as I said, there's been some some sort of scapegoating, but but for the most part, it doesn't really fit into our categories of having even a political discussion. Exactly. And actually, when we look at human psychology from the very beginning, it's all about explaining the unobservable events. And this feels like this unobservable agent that we're trying to explain um, in in a way that now we're, we have the science to know why it's occurring and how it's occurring, but it fe still feels like this enemy uh, and that metaphor of war and overcoming uh, is really prevalent in how a lot of political leaders have been discussing the disease and how a lot of us are thinking about the disease. So uh, our human, uh, our core human evolutionary tendencies in terms of explaining unobservable phenomena are really manifesting themselves in explaining this unobservable enemy. So I'm going to try and, uh, link two threads from this conversation uh, and let's see if this works just so we can tie some things together one is what you were saying there about unobservable phenomena and people's will to explain that and the other is cognitive rigidity uh, and and one of the things one of the words that popped into my head there is is faith you know people they want to have faith in their politicians uh, they have religious faith uh, and what you what you encounter sometimes is people who can be uh, tremendously liberal, pluralistic, open-minded, uh, in no ostensible way super cognitively rigid, but will have a very, very profound religious belief and a very an unshakable faith. Almost a paradox going on here, where you can have, at one level, a huge degree of cognitive flexibility, as it were, in your secular life, and then what you might think of as uh, quite a lot of cognitive rigidity in the sense that you have, you know, doctrinal strong, firm religious beliefs that are unshakable. How, how do you account for that paradox? Is that a paradox? So I think it's only a paradox if we see people as paradoxes, which they are, right? People hold sometimes contradictory beliefs at the same time, and people can display rigidity in some domains and flexibility in other domains. So on one hand, in our science, we're trying to show that there is this consistent relationship between your perceptual cognitive rigidity at the core of your cognition and rigidity in a number of other domains in your life. But this is not a completely straightforward link and it's not always going to manifest itself in the same ways in every individual. So people can display a range of rigidity and flexibility in their lives uh, and it's not necessarily that linear or that unitary. Would you expect to see more cognitive rigidity in very religious communities or very religious societies or is this not even a correlation 
So we do have research showing that, for instance, greater religious disbelief tends to be related with more cognitive flexibility, um, and that sometimes it is a function of your upbringing and how much you have either left religion or entered religion in your later life relative to how you were brought up. So there are a number of quite complex interactions showing that on one hand, really, some people have these dispositions that lend themselves towards rigidity or lend themselves towards uh, religious belief or disbelief. And on the other hand, there's also a crucial role of context and environment and those interact in every individual in different ways. Now, there might not even be an answer to this, uh, but it, it, immediately what I thought when you were saying that was that that in, in some religions and societies, the, the late converts have a reputation for being more zealous. Uh, it's almost if when you come to a religion late in life or born again, in some cases, uh, that in itself then turns into a much more uh, intense uh, even, I don't know, cognitively rigid, I'm now very attached to this new term, and we're using it all the time in everyday conversation, <laughs> um, frame. Uh, it, it, do we have any evidence on that? Is, or am I going off, am I, have I gone off piece there? Well, research is ongoing, and it's not completely insensible to, uh, to hypothesize that. Uh, and we do anecdotally see that occasionally, because often when people attach themselves to new ideological groups, wherever those Whatever those can be, whether that's in the domain of religion or politics or social groups, whether that's a sports club you're a fan of, sometimes new converts, in order to display their faith or their belief, do tend to attach a little more strongly than people who've always grown up with it, but sometimes also not. So again, this is one of those things where I'm going to be a scientist and say it depends and it depends no, on a number of factors. That's, that's perfect. That's exactly what we want on this podcast. And, and I, I would hate to catch myself slipping into that awful sort of broadcasting idiom of thinking, you know, that there has to there have to be black and white answers to any of these things. And immediately I'm thinking, well, this would explain my disproportionately uh, sort of emotional, uh, in, emotionally intense reaction to to Brighton and Hove Albion football club's <laughs> performance, despite actually only having moved to Brighton about five years ago. So I'm one of those... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I like to think of myself as cognitively flexible on many fronts, but I'm cognitively rigid as hell when it comes to to Brighton. Um, <laughs> we, we're we're really running out of time here, so I just want to uh, before I let you go, I really need to to understand. I mean, I find this stuff fascinating, and I hope people listening to this will have found it fascinating. Uh, how did you how did you get into this? Why, what what made you want to look at? Why people are, are behaving the way they do and forming these affiliations? And is it because you would prefer that they were less rigid or is it just you want to study the phenomenon? So I think there are two aspects of this. I think on one hand, it is so important to understand these phenomena, especially because we have a lot of preconceptions and prejudices about what makes people join particular groups or what makes some people more susceptible to radicalization than other people. Often we think it's just a kind of demographic set of variables that shape why a particular person is vulnerable to extremism, whereas another person isn't. But what we're finding in this research is that psychology plays a huge role. And I think that's incredibly important for the second reason, which is to identify vulnerable individuals and to really think of all sorts of antidotes, whether those are creative pursuits or helping people who are at greater risk of becoming radicalized to any kind of ideological group and taking it to a dangerous extreme. I think it's important to help those people um, and to think how we can do that in ethical and sensitive ways. Yeah, see, now you've made me want to start a whole new conversation because that's so very interesting. I mean, the, sorry, <laughs> but the, 
that in itself is fascinating because there is this tendency in the in a political discussion of radicalization to think that it is it is very culturally specific you know we know that when there have been terrorist acts for example there there's an often a not very productive very polarized debate about whether there is something intrinsic about say islam that lends itself to radicalization and it, it can that can become a very ugly discourse very quickly um uh, and yet from what you're saying, you think that is really not all that helpful when you think that the the, the mechanisms that radicalise or by which we self-radicalise are, are sort of notionally available more or less in any cultural context. Exactly. And a lot of my research looks at the extent to which really perhaps we should be studying mechanisms of extremism um, and attachment to ideologies across a huge range of ideologies in the same way. Right now we think of religious fundamentalism as one kind and political extremism as a different kind and football fanaticism as a different kind. And really, perhaps they're all reflecting these similar phenomena and treating them as different could be dangerous because it means that we're overlooking potentially vulnerable people, potentially vulnerable communities uh, who could be helped by uh, thinking about really a mechanistic account rather than simply uh, our biases shaping what we see different doctrines to be. But then that then leads me to to another question, which again, <laughs> I had said the lot, three questions ago was the last one. This probably has to be the last one. But uh, that makes me think about the way in which the technology has is involved. And there's been a lot of discussion all around about, um, you know, we talked earlier about people going into their sort of filter bubbles uh, and uh, spending time in closed Facebook groups and radicalizing themselves in all sorts of directions. And one of the questions that always comes up when I have this discussion is whether the technology has accelerated a process that was already there or whether actually the technology, the algorithms are doing something completely new that humanity hasn't really encountered before. Did, did you see the distinction? Yeah, and that's a great question. Some of it we can only know empirically in retrospect. But I think in many ways, even new technologies and even new phenomena and new epidemics and all of these events that feel unprecedented, like we said before, are actually precedented and actually have their core in human psychology, in the kind of human political mind that really... Uh, we can see repeated across history and that we can see repeated within our own societies and merit a close look. Now, does that make you more or less optimistic that we can crack this? I mean, in, in the sense that if, if, you know, if it was ever thus and people are always radicalizing themselves and, and polarizing and then things happen, and bring them together again, are we as a species sort of destined to play out this cycle or, or, you know, or is there progress? Are we getting collectively, cognitively looser? I think I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. I think that uh, on one hand, we need to be aware of our history, but we also have to give ourselves agency because without a sense of agency, uh, we'll just be believing in some destiny that will play out that might not if we don't make it happen. So I think we have to be aware of how we're going to bring people together, of how we're going to overcome polarization in all these unprecedented times in order for that to actually happen. We can't just sit passively and let it happen because human psychology doesn't work that way either. Okay, that sounds to me like the right cautiously optimistic note on which to end this conversation. So I just need to say, uh, Dr. Leos Migro, thank you so much for doing this, for talking to us. It's been really illuminating. Thank you, it was great.
I really enjoyed that. I found that fantastically interesting. Uh, I really hope uh, it was interesting for other people. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm now going to obviously be talking about cognitive rigidity in a column at some point soon. I thought you, um, I thought you pretty good. I'm surprised you, you, you don't have a podcast of your own at the moment. Uh, well, I do now, don't I? No. Okay. Well, we'll decide that. <laughs> Let's see how many people are listening to this. Um, uh, oh, that, and but if you've listened this far, by the way, thank you. We really appreciate it. And I should also thank uh, uh, Out Yonder TV, who did some did the music for us, which you haven't heard yet, but it will be good. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, we'll be doing another one after Easter, and we hope to hope you'll tune in then. Uh, if you've got any thoughts, comments. Uh, ideas uh, for contributions uh, you can tweet uh, phil at philip b berman that's philip with one l b berman uh, or you can email potc at larchmontfilms.com uh, i'm sure we'll have a more efficient way of communicating with our listeners uh, at some point but for the time being that's what we're going with uh, and i think that's everything uh, thank you everyone goodbye Bye.